The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you, yes, you, and you to the left, you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and today I'm wearing my Quibi t-shirt. Whitney bought a Quibi <laughs> t-shirt. Yes, I did. It already looks like you've owned it for a year. Well, what I love about it is it's, it's the Quibi logo, which is just a big sort of roundy Q. And uh, go- oh golly, I hope nobody thinks I'm like a QAnon supporter. Or anything oh god, in shirt. Um, Ew. But uh, the funny thing about it is it's it's the the Quibi logo, and they made it look like a pre-stressed old T-shirt because Quibi's <laughs> going to be around forever, man. Uh, and, oh, oh golly, the conceit, dude! They brought the XFL back. Quibi could come back. <laughs> That's, Quibi could, could it? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> never ha, give has, up. Has never a, surrender. Has a network ever come back? I don't think that's ever happened. Ooh, that's a good question. Yes. I, I, I know. Our, so. I know. Studios have come back. Like Hammer closed its doors and then yeah. it came back. Uh, RKO closed its doors and it came back. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of those like United Artists yeah, closed its doors yeah. and came back. Or, that, Orion that's as well. Yeah, so that's may, happened. That's maybe, not the crazy maybe thing. Maybe there world. is a future for Quibi. Quibi is still active, by the way. Like, you, like you can they still said, get it. You got they one said more they're, they're going to sell it. They're going to close it down. You got to have a month to to consume everything there is on Quibi. And considering how short everything on Quibi is, that's more than enough time. <laughs> you could totally do it. Yeah, and there there are some good weird things on there. A lot of yeah. strange experiments they're just t- tinkering with. Anyway, we're going to try to do some Quibi stuff and cancel too soon and before it's too late. But mm. before we get to that, we have to do We've Got Mail because that's yeah. the podcast we're recording this right is now. True. It's not the Quibi Hour, Whitney. We well, should have done that. Well, we should have done a whole be. podcast dedicated to Quibi. Like we, we saw the writing on the wall right away, so we got to get to Quibi right, we right away. We recognize failure when we see it. Mm. Anyway. Although, although it failed with us uh, with Shadow Hunters. That's true. We assumed Shadow Hunters was going to be a flash in the pan, and that ended up lasting like, I sh- three seasons. I should have listened to my heart, because I actually like the Mortal Instruments. But anyway, we need to move on. Uh, right. We've Got Mail is the podcast where we read your mail, and don't just talk about Quibi the whole time. Uh, you write us... The emails, you ask us questions, you ask us to share our thoughts, you recommend stuff to us, you take issue with things that we said, and we take your hmm. criticism seriously because we're critics. We'd like you to take our criticism seriously. It goes both ways. Uh, so if you want to join in, you can email us. Uh, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We don't have time to read every single letter that we get, but we sure as hell try, which is why yeah. we do this on a weekly basis. So without yeah. further ado, Whitney, let's just jump right in. All right. Here's a letter from uh, just the letter C. I, I read your letters however you sign them off. Yeah. 
Not going to read your name out of the subject like line. Like Sleepless um, in Seattle. Yeah. It's not just Tom Hanks. You yeah. call him Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, I've been craving some gender-bending stories. Mm-hmm. However, it seems this type of story isn't used that often. Uh, in this instance, I'm not referring to gender-bending as the Prince and the Poppers ty- type of a story. I'm interested in people swapping bodies with someone else to understand their point of view better, mm-hmm. like Freaky Friday. In this case, I'm really looking for something that has a character experience, uh, their story as an alternative gender, now that they have started. A simple example would be the anime Ranma One Half. Yeah. Uh, in it, the main character switches from male to female when splashed with water. They are not two different characters uh, when their gender shifts, but are one character living a life two different ways. Because this is such a niche request, I'd be happy to hear suggestions you have for these types of stories, whether they're from movies, televisions, or books. Uh, thank you for all the work you put into these podcasts during these difficult times. It really means so much. Stay safe. Virtual hug, C. Thank you. Uh, oh, golly. There's actually a lot of those. Um, um, yeah, it's, 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 the, a sub, uh, it's a sub-genre. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of swapping bodies, of walking a mile in another person's shoes, has been appealing to... Storytellers, pretty much so, since the dawn of drama. I was about to say, so going back as far as Ovid, if you really want to go that far. Um, yeah, but like, you know, Shakespeare did it mm-hmm. a bunch of times. Shakespeare even did uh, characters who, uh, uh, well, they didn't they didn't switch bodies, but they There's, were living of, their yeah, lives like as... Cross-dressing. Yeah, Ovid. living their lives as someone mm-hmm. of another gender. Um, yeah, Twelfth Night is probably the most famous example, mm-hmm. but it also happens in... Uh, a Merchant of Venice and uh, uh, As You Like It and a couple yeah. others. Um, uh, but uh, in the in the contemporary wait, as you, field, as you like it? no, there's no cross dressing. I don't remember As You Like no. It. I don't, I actually, I don't know if I've ever seen As You Like It. Uh, but um, yeah, in the in the cinematic realm, uh, there have been a fair number of body swap movies. I think it probably predates Freaky Friday, but Freaky Friday is the one that I think codified it as a little genre, and mm. it led to a whole bunch of imitators, uh, mm. stuff like Vice Versa. 18 again, yeah. Uh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in terms of, like, switching genders, I mean, heck, go see Possessor. That's playing right now. Oh, yeah. That's about uh, um, Andrea Riseborough has her mind shunted into the body of a man, and she has to wrestle with her sexual identity a lot in that one. Uh, Sally Potter's film Orlando, I hear is quite good, but I haven't seen it. Mm. And that's uh, based on the book, uh, the Virginia Woolf novel. Uh, I saw or... that when I was like 10 years old and I was oh. not ready for it yet. I think, it was, <laughs> I think my eyes glazed over what? a little bit because it's just kind of like mature and like, well, it's... it's not like exciting. It's just kind of like this sort of thoughtful art house piece. And I've been meaning to revisit it ever since. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, that that's... Um... It's based on the novel about, I think it's a, a, a nobleman who is immortal and over the course of the story changes from male to, or is it from female to male or male to female? I don't remember. They change, they change genders gradually. Yes, over they the course change genders repeatedly, many, yeah. Uh, many, many years. Um, Rama One Half is a fun example. Mm. Uh, there's a really trashy film with Sean Young called uh, Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Hyde, um, mm. which is better than it sounds, but it's still not very good. Well, and that's actually not quite the same thing because Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Hyde or Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, mm. which is the 70s version of that exact same thing where Dr. Jekyll turns into mm. another person who is the embodiment of all their basis desires, but that person is female. Uh, that movie is actually pretty good. Uh, I actually like the 70s version. The 90s version with Sean Young is just a cheesy comedy and it doesn't mm-hmm. really work. But the 70s version is actually pretty mm-hmm. cool. But they're different characters. Like yeah. they have different personalities, different aspects of one personality. It's not just, oh, I'm a different body now. The Probably the best example of what you're talking about that I can think of. And please, write in. Because I can think of a few and we'll talk mm-hmm. about them. Uh, but the well, I, got, an- I got a bunch more. Well, the yeah. anime <laughs> film Your Name uh, oh, is, is uh, mm-hmm. extraordinarily popular. 
in Japan. Um, it got a lot of critics uh, uh, talking about it when it came out over here, but it didn't have a giant release. Uh, it is a story of, it's an anime film about uh, a teenage boy and a teenage girl, and for reasons they do not understand, mm. every other day they switch bodies, and they don't know each other. Mm-hmm. They live in like different parts of the country. They don't know what's going on, but every other day they're in the other one's body. And a lot of the film, and I think the best parts of the film are just them sort of getting used to that and trying to like share each other's lives and try to find ways to communicate with each other. And it's really kind of beautiful and interesting. And I kind of wish it had been more about that. It ends up like the second half ends up being a bit more about the plot. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty good. It's not a bad movie. I like it a lot. But for me, I just kind of got, I was so enamored of the first half that the second half mm-hmm. just didn't blow my mind. But it's a very, very sweet movie, um, and I like that one a lot. What, what was that uh, teen romance where mm. um, every day uh, the main character's uh, paramour was in a new body? I think it's called Every Day. It's called Every Day. Yeah, okay. the, it's actually, it was a, actually I kind of like that movie, actually. Right. It's a yeah. story about someone who is, every single day they wake up in someone's body. Uh, and they live out one day as that person. Mm. Um, it's always it's like someone qu- quantum leaping, so they're yeah. in like a, a, an existing person. Yeah, but uh, they fall in, in their life. But they yeah. fall in love with one person, mm. and they have to find a way to live like that. And that's extremely odd. Mm. <laughs> it's an extremely interesting situation. And but yeah, they they keep changing bodies, uh, ages, and genders. So they. Um, um, I think I, I don't think I, it's I don't actually think it's always the same age. I think that's oh is thing. it oh that's I think it's right, always yeah. the same age, but it, it can be a different. Uh, right, so so it's not time. creepy. Yeah, so it's always yeah. the same. Yeah, age, yeah no, it's always it's the a, same. A teenage age. girl and, and another random teenager, but boys and girls as well. Exactly, mm-hmm. and um, and I actually think that the, the most remarkable thing about that movie, I would give that movie an Academy Award for casting <laughs> because one of the characters is played by like thirty different people over the course of the film, and they nail it. It always feels like the same character. It's nice. actually an interesting film. Um, I I remember seeing it's been I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but uh, it seemed so striking and and sexually daring at the time. But it was Blake Edwards switch. Yeah, I remember that uh, with Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Smith. It's about a, a. a womanizing Lothario who's murdered by three of his uh, mistresses that he's broken their hearts in the past mm-hmm. uh, has a conversation with God in the afterlife. And uh, they say, you have to go back to earth and fix everything because you've been such a dick. Right. But you're a woman now. Yeah. Now you're played by Ellen Barkin. Yeah, you were a misogynist so, and yeah. now you have to live life as a woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Blake Edwards gets some material out of that. So, so I remember, yeah. So there were some interesting ideas, but again, I was like 11 or 12 when I saw it. Um, I saw a film, a British uh, sex farce called Virtual Sexuality at one <laughs> Don't point. Don't remember that at all. Yeah, nobody does. Okay. Um, but uh, it was about a, a teenage girl who... Is it a who... film? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Virtual Insanity. Oh, sorry. Jamiroquai. They're no hoobastank. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, they think they rejected band names before getting to hoobastank. Think of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's about a teenage girl who goes to this computer uh, fair, this like virtual, re- and tries out a virtual reality machine and creates her ultimate boyfriend. She starts with a model of herself and she, like mutates her own body until she's this tall, blonde, hunky dude with a big wang, and that's that's sort of like the joke. And of course, there's a power surge, and uh, she ends up walking out of the machine in this male body that she created for herself. Mm. The problem is she created a straight male for herself. So all of a sudden she's a straight man yeah. and has to wrestle with this idea that now she's a straight man who's attracted to women. 
And even though in her mind she was previously a straight woman who was attracted to men. Yeah. Uh, which is one interesting aspect in this otherwise completely trashy sex farce. Hmm. Um, All right. Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a concept in that one. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, trashy but actually surprisingly interesting, uh, mm. I'm going to go to bat. Not entirely. I'm not going to say this is a cinematic classic or anything like that. Mm. But what I will say is that of this actor's oeuvre, <laughs> this is the surprisingly good one. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking of the Rob Schneider film, The Hot Chick. I didn't see The Hot Chick. The Hot Chick. Okay, because so, I didn't want to. No, no, fair enough. Rob mm-hmm. Schneider had like a weird like career in like the 2000s where he would constantly star in movies where he was turned into things. Like he was turned into like some the kind animal, of, yeah, yeah, some kind of were animal creature. No, or, he, he uh, was in an accident and a mad veterinarian transplanted animal organs into him. Yeah. So he started behaving like all the, the animal kingdom. Exactly. Uh, but in the hot chick, uh, it's a body swapping thing and he ends up, uh, he's just a normal schlubby dude. And Mm. he switches bodies with a mean girl played by mean girls is Rachel McAdams. Oh wait, no, Rachel, was it Rachel McAdams? I know, I know Anna no, no, Ferris was the best Anna friend. Ferris is, okay, yeah. I'm trying to remember. Anna Ferris is the best friend in this. Yeah. For a second, I thought it was Anna Ferris lead, oh, but no. He yeah. switches places with Rachel McAdams. She's actually out of the movie for a lot of it. And now he's trying to ingratiate himself with the like wealthy, like suburbanite, yuppie family he was a part of. Mm. And he's playing a woman who is suddenly in Rob Schneider's body of all bodies. And yeah, it's broad and it's stupid and there's a lot of stupid stuff in it. It's also like surprisingly cool with it. Hmm. Like that's the thing that I, that I remember thinking to myself, this is actually like surprisingly cool with all of the questions that this raises. And it's not like, yeah, I, I actually hmm. think that handled the material better than you would think. There's a movie coming out in a couple of weeks called Freaky. Which is actually about this, but it's, it's a slasher. It's it's the slasher freaky as in Freaky Friday. It's the slasher yeah. version of Freaky Friday. Yeah, where um um I think a a young woman uh switches bodies with the uh, a male serial killer played by Vince Vaughn. I didn't realize it was Vince Vaughn. It's I knew Vince that, Vaughn. I knew that was the premise, but yeah, yeah I didn't it's realize Vince it was Vaughn. Vaughn. Okay. Yeah, that's fun. Um, and uh, without giving too much away, but uh, the Spearig brothers, and we've talked about this movie before because oh, yeah. it's this really weird time travel thing called Predestination. Uh, and that's an element in there. There's there's an el- yeah there's this uh, body swapping element in it, but I can't tell you more because that would actually give away uh, like a big part of the movie. Yeah, it's really good though, and Sarah yeah, Snook it, gives one of the better performances of the last ten years. In yeah, Sarah Sarah Snook is so good. Why isn't she a bigger star? I think she's a big star on TV now. Oh yeah, I think she she's, goes, on, she's on one of those big hit show. She's on one of those hit shows that mm. all the kids are talking about. With she, their she, HBO and their she's an Spike TV, an Australian and, act, actress, and I've seen her in in a lot of uh, a lot of films, and she's always good. She's, she's on Succession. A, Succession. People talk about Succession a lot. I hear it's good. Mm. Didn't see it. Uh, but anyway, um, oh, uh, I hope that gives you something to work with. Um, it's not something that's always been handled with great sensitivity and some of the things that we're recommending are guaranteed to be real hit or miss, especially by today's standards. Yeah, but yeah, if you're like, interested I, I in exploring the subgenre, that will give you places hmm. to start. Yeah. 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 Uh, here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Hi. Um, hello, Mr. Champ and Champ Meister McCool. I'm so cool. <laughs> I got extra O's. Uh, I am a Rockmeister McCool is, is my letters name. If you yeah. want, if you he only has the nickname on this podcast, <laughs> yeah, none of the other podcasts. Uh, I am a massive fan of the film Ed Wood, and I ah. think it provides a great basis for other biopic formats for passionate, but not great art. Are there any particular stories or artists you'd like to uh, see be turned into this kind of film? 
My pitch has been uh, the writing and production of Love Never Dies through the inception in the 90s of it never really working to it becoming reality in the 2000s and Andrew Lloyd Webber's cat deleting the entire score of the musical, which actually happened. Oh, I didn't even Um, know that. That's funny. (laughs) It was revenge for cats, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for reading this, and I can't wait to hear what you two think of. Sincerely, Adelaide. Um, Yeah, I remember Hmm. when, thank you, Adelaide, Hmm. I remember when Ed Wood came out, and it was considered kind of a novelty at the time because it kind of... Uh, it kind of broke the mold and how biopics were done. It wasn't the only movie to do this, but the idea behind Ed Wood is we're not going to tell the story of everything that ever happened to this person in their whole lives, mm. which was often the basic format. Yeah. The idea is we're going to tell a story with the most interesting time in their life, the time that they did something cool. Right. Uh, it was written by it was written by Scott Alexander and uh, Larry Kirazuski, who we've actually had on one of our podcasts, and they were very That's cool. That's right. Uh, but they've done this uh, uh, format multiple times. Uh, they did Ed Wood, which is the story of Ed Wood through his relationship with Bella Lugosi, which apparently is extremely fictionalized. Mm. Or at the very least, seen through rose-colored glasses. Um, they did The People versus Larry Flint, which is specifically about Larry Flint's uh, path to a landmark Supreme Court case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did The Man on the Moon, which really was more about everything in, in Andy Kaufman's life, but he didn't live very long, sadly. So that one was a little different. And they did uh, Big Eyes, mm-hmm. which was about the relationship between Margaret Keene and her abusive husband, who took all the credit for her work. Mm-hmm. And then they did, mm-hmm. uh, more recently, they did uh, Dolomite Is My Name. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was about the making of Dolomite and everything that led up and, to it. And, and it's yeah, a great it's movie. a biopic of Rudy Ray Moore and yeah. sort of hit his weird, raunchy humor and the place it occupies in culture. All of those are really good movies, mm-hmm. regardless of who directed them. And they're directed by a lot of different people. Um, and yeah, so if you're asking for like what kind of a movie would we do in the Edward format, which is we're going to take someone who is famous, mm-hmm. but we're going to tell the story of like one interesting chapter in their lives. I have had a pitch percolating in the back of my head for a long time, mm-hmm. and I've come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to get to make this. Uh, so I'll just tell you now. I want to do a biopic of Rod Serling, the creator okay. of The Twilight Zone. That begins the night the Twilight Zone premieres and ends the day it is canceled. Mm. And the night that premieres is interesting because there was actually, he actually did an interview. He was a very famous TV writer before the Twilight Zone came out. There's a reason they gave him the Twilight Zone. He had done a series of hit TV movies, uh, in particular things like Requiem for a Heavyweight or The Comedian or Patterns. Most, if not all of those, had eventually been like adapted into feature films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, when he moved to the Twilight Zone and he created this series, this anthology sci-fi horror series, he did an interview the night the Twilight Zone came out in which one of the questions was, so why did you give up on serious television? <laughs> and when you know anything about the Twilight Zone, that's hilarious. And when you also look at the Twilight Zone you'll, and you look at the biography of Rod Serling, you realize that he wrote a lot of episodes of that show and a lot of them parallel issues that he was dealing with in his personal life. Mm. Uh, issues with uh, you know his relationships, his families, his feelings about uh, being a soldier, his feelings about politics, yeah, and yeah. his and also there's the added uh, drama. And I mentioned this in other podcasts. Uh, the network hated the Twilight Zone. <laughs> it was a hit show, so they couldn't cancel it. But it was not the the identity they wanted for their yeah, network, yeah, yeah. and so they were constantly trying to sabotage it. So it's him fighting the network to keep his hit show on the air. It's an odd time. 
Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things you could do with it that'd be really exciting and cool. Who do you cast as Rod Serling? Uh, I don't That's know. That's a tough one. I feel like, I think at the time I first came up with this, like Ed Norton was still pretty big and I kind of wanted okay. Ed Norton to do it. He can still probably do it. He's probably, probably even more yeah. age appropriate now, but... Um, that's still a very good actor. Oh, he's an amazing actor. He's a really good reputation of being hard to work with, whatever that means. But, uh, but but like when I came up with this, it was still like the the early two thousands and he was still one of like the top actors in the business. Okay. Um, so yeah, Ed Norton was my first thought, but you know, I'm open to, I'm open to pitches. (laughs) (laughs) If if you're like, I refuse to make this movie unless Mm. you cast, I don't know, Shia LaBeouf, I'd be like. You know, I can see it. He's a little young, but yeah, okay. We can do some flashback stuff. It'd be fine. I'd make the most of it. <laughs> sure, if I could see Shia LaBeouf as somebody like Rod Serling. I don't know. You, you saw Honey Boy, right? Was, yeah, he's very good. He's Honey a very Boy, good yeah. actor. He's a very good actor. Yeah. He's always been good. Yeah. Just, you know, he's all, was dealing with things in public, and that yeah. earned him a bad reputation. Well, a lot uh, of young actors just struggle once yeah, they yeah. come you know become adults and have to and deal yeah. with all the shit that they dealt with Ex- indeed kid. indeed anyway any other ideas from you uh absolutely well i i've i like edward as well i like yeah. um scott alexander and larry karazuski's idea of taking essentially like fringe or cult figures mm. and giving them the a hollywood treatment yeah so they've you know had biopics of people like rudy raymore and people like margaret Keane and people like yeah. edward people who've had uh, successes but they're not mainstream exactly yeah. so i i I'm used to thinking in those terms. So I would love to see like a biopic of Sun Ra, the jazz musician oh. who like uh, started out as a um, pretty straightforward jazz musician. But as his career went on, he started wearing like golden robes and big headdresses and claiming it was from Venus and started writing all these really bizarre, incredibly long space jazz odysseys uh, talking about how, you know, going back to the planet Venus and, he was he was just a really fascinating guy. And I would love to see the arc of, of uh, Sun Ra, but told as if everything he said was true and that he actually is like a space visitor. So we start on his home planet and he comes back to... Oh, so it's the so, confessions of a dangerous mind. Exactly, yeah. but but with Sun Ra. Yeah, okay. I like it. Um, uh, look up Chinchiolina at some oh, point. Yeah, she, she has a really interesting story. That's a cool um, one. Yeah, she's... Uh, one of Italy's most famous porn stars who was also elected to parliament at one point uh, in the early nineties, she was serving in the Italian parliament. Uh, she, uh, she, she actually tried to contact uh, Saddam Hussein during a uh, desert storm. <clears throat> and she said, you know, if, if you call, I'll, I'll have sex with you. If you call off the war, <laughs> she's probably serious too. I, w- I wonder what he said. <clears throat> I'm not, he, I'm not sure if the he, message, message ever got to him. But yeah. The story that I heard uh, was uh, <coughs> Charlie Excuse Chaplin. Me. Yeah, we're all it's we've been podcasting so much. Yeah, it's, I'm just hoarse from talking a lot. Uh, the story I heard was that uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, who uh, mm. you know, silent comedian, and mm. uh, later on in the actually made a pretty successful transition to the sound era, and uh, his film The Great Dictator mm. uh, was a merciless riff on Adolf Hitler. Mm. Adolf Hitler apparently acquired a print of this, watched it, and then asked to watch it again, and then like had it destroyed or something. Mm. And Charlie Chaplin was just like, I just wish I knew what he thought. <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> I mean, he's one of the most monstrous human beings in the world, but I wish he'd have said something. Mm. I just want to know what he thought of the fucking film. Mm. Oh, you know what I'd love to see? Mm. Uh, and, and this is another, like, you'd have to tell the story from inside their own mythos. It couldn't mm. be about the actual people involved. 
the Guar movie. Yeah, I want to see a, a I want to see a Guar movie where like they they climb up out of hell and invade Earth with their rock god powers. <laughs> Where's it's our like, Kiss movie, by the way? We haven't had like a good Kiss movie. There, there is a Kiss movie. It's called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. They okay. play themselves. They have superpowers. I, I'm not talking about in their time. They fight I'm Anthony Zerbe and a bunch of robots. I'm talking about in retrospect. Oh, like the the biopic of of Kiss. Yeah. It's gotta be, someone's gotta do it, right? I, I suppose time. so. We, we've done, like, we're, we're doing, like, we've done <clears throat> Bohemian Rhapsody, we've done Elton John. Mm. Kiss had a million hits. Like, mm. they're, they're a good candidate for that. And, and they're very open about how willing they were to sell out. Like, oh, from yeah. the start, that's what, all they ever wanted to do. Yeah. I think that's uh, an interesting some, perspective is people yeah. who are happy to sell out. Like, whatever. Mm. It was a job. <laughs> like I, I, we didn't believe we were cat people. In, in, a, in a recent interview, like, somebody asked Gene Simmons, it's like, where, w- do you consider Kiss to be, like, a band or is it just a brand now? And he said, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have those kinds of principles. What the fuck? I'm just <laughs> making money. Whatever. Yeah. He's really, really, really rich. Hey, we want to put your name on a casket. Good. Go for it. <laughs> Want to go on a kiss cruise? You can. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole bunch of, uh, of ones we would love to see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? Because everyone's got a cool story if you, if you dig yeah. deep enough. Uh, here's our next letter. Here's a letter from Alan. It's, uh, it says, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, uh, K-E-W-L. Nice. All spellings I- are correct. Uh, we recently talked about fan fiction on yeah. a letters episode, so this uh, pertains to that. Uh, Dear Biz and Rockmeister McCool, I thought I'd tell you some of my own experiences writing fan fiction. Great. I was a huge fan of Xena Warrior Princess, which was my first foray in- onto the internet. Uh, a good place to start. Xena is a, uni- uh, is a unique spelling, so put Xena into a search engine, and you go to Xena Warrior Princess. I was amazed at the length and high quality of Xena Warrior Princess fan fiction available, all of it done for free, so I became a fan fiction writer, and I got some fans. It's been said that in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, and on the internet everyone will be famous to 15 people. That's cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, that's, I, I felt that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to give any example of good Xena Warrior Princess fan fiction, since I'm sure you're not the fanatic I am. The superstar of Xena Warrior Princess fan fiction was Melissa Good. Okay. All right. Celebrity in that in that community. Cool. Uh, some episodes of Xena Warrior Princess were about characters who were reincarnations of Xena and Gabrielle, Xena's sidekick. Melissa Good created characters who were reincarnations of Xena and Gabrielle and wrote novels about them, which were published. I don't know if they were self-published or not, but they were allowed to be published for profit, and Melissa Good was even allowed to write an episode of Xena Warrior Princess. Oh, that's oh, cool. Oh, okay. That's like um, what happened with Tim Ripper Owens and uh, Judas Priest. Oh, yeah, yeah, He was yeah. in a Judas Priest cover band, and he was ended up being hired as the new frontman. Yeah. That's uh, that. That was the loose basis of the Mark Wahlberg movie Rockstar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they changed all. They changed everything, but the basic premise. Yeah, the, the band in that movie was called Steel Dragon. I remember that much. <laughs> That'll be on the spread. <clears throat> uh, I conclude with my favorite review. Someone left me of a piece of Xena Warrior Princess fan fiction, which I wrote, and this is the review. I really liked this, but I can't help feeling it was also quite unsettling by what it explored. In order to spare my poor sub-loving nerves, I really had to suspend my disbelief concerning the characters and their actions. However, there's a cracking story underneath the trauma, and it's intriguing to see a whole new darker avenue to what makes the core of Xena Gabrielle's relationship. This fic is bittersweet, certainly, and liberally peppered with little stings in its tail. Very well written.
intelligent and well worth reading. Uh, this is Alan signing off. That is a that is a sharp yeah. review. That's for that's a, that I I'm you know we're talking about people who write fan fiction. Hmm. I'm interested in people who write fan fiction reviews. That's a very <laughs> that's a very nicely worded review. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for writing in about that. Yeah, we talked a bit about fan fiction on a, I think it was the last episode of We've Got Man. It was yeah. Uh, and we invited people who had more experience than we. Uh, reading it or writing it. Yeah, we were uh, only able to speak in the abstract. We weren't really yeah, we, hands-on experience. We support it in principle. Um, you know, any art, you know, can be good. You mm-hmm. know, you don't want to just dismiss a medium or a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're always eager to hear uh, from more people in the fan fiction community. I had a couple people tell me they would write in. I don't have time to get to all of them today, but we would love to keep hearing from you. So please uh, yeah, yeah. keep writing in. If you have uh, interesting or unique experiences in the fan fiction community, you want to share your thoughts on uh, the validity of the art form uh, or uh, anything at all, really. Just anything yeah. we, we couldn't cover because it's not in our uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although um, I, something I did not confess to oh, is no. that I've written some fan fiction. No shit. Yeah, no, when, I was, when I was in high school, I wrote some Star Trek The Next Generation stuff. Oh, that's cool. It, it, it wasn't... What did, you, what did you write? It, it wasn't porn. It was just itself... It doesn't in, have to be self, porn. I know, but it was... <laughs> Why would we assume? A, a lot of it is. That's, that's, my, that's all my okay. point. I, I know that's the appeal of a lot of fan fiction, as you can... Put the characters in sexual situations. Well, because oftentimes the they're on network TV. And well, they're yeah. not in those situations. Well, because like network TV or mainstream mm. movies or whatever, oftentimes they don't really delve into the sexual lives of their characters mm. because sex tends to make people uncomfortable when yeah, you're but, in yeah. a crowd. So, but they've the, the, kind the of people, shied away yeah, from that. But a the lot. people watching are human beings, and they have yeah. libidos, so they want to see those in yeah. those things. That yeah, um, makes sense. So I get it. Um, but yeah, it, it was shameless self-insert. Uh, me and my be- me and my best friend at the time were characters on the Enterprise. We were nice. like time traveling ruffians who got to interact with the crew and wrote, wrote like thirty pages of a book. Yeah, like I got pretty deep into it. I That's came up cool. with this whole story and like who was going to be responsible and how it was going to conclude. I never actually finished it. Um, you'll never get to see it. <laughs> I think I might still have it somewhere, but no, I'm, I wrote never, a, uh, I'm never actually going to like expose it to the world. I wrote like the first act of a spec script for a Superman movie. Okay. And it was just supposed to be like the, like the, uh, cause I'd never seen, I still haven't really mm-hmm. like, I've never seen like the Superman movie I have in my head. Okay. Um, just in terms of like tone and mm-hmm. storyline and character. And I just feel like it's always people come like come hit one part of it, but it's always misses all the other stuff that I like. Like mm-hmm. Man of Steel had the action that I wanted, but it kind of didn't have the romance or the moral core. And so I wrote like a 30 pages or so of the version I wanted to see. That is long since gone. That is <laughs> That is on the hard drive of like... Uh, an IMAX somewhere that has <laughs> long since been somewhere. run over by a steamroller. Like, it's just, oof, it's gone. Those, those IMAX, like, they had a big handle on the top. They were yeah. really heavy. Yeah. Like, they were, like, 50 pounds. The idea was you're supposed to lug it with you. I don't know why. No one did that. Yeah, no, no, like, kick, kick to the coffee shop or whatever. <laughs> those things were built to be dropped off of roofs. <laughs> Like I'm, yeah. I'm ser- like I, I picked right. one up, and the first thing I wanted to do was to like drop it from a great height. It's like this is so like it feels like it needs to be dropped. Like good job, Steve Jobs. Moving. Uh, oh, how did they describe it in the, the Steve Jobs movie? I it looked like Judy Jetson's Easy Bake Oven. No, that's I not. thought that was a good description. That's a good description. 
Moving on. Here's a letter from Andrew. Um, Morning, gentlemen. Being an aspiring writer, I've always been fascinated with the idea that a novel or story I write can be translated onto the big screen. Hmm. When people talk about good book adaptations, they often talk about how material was added to the source to make it more film-worthy, yet also to see how faithful to the source it was. I access uh, good adaptations access good adaptation based off of how I leave the film, finding my favorites to be the ones that made me feel assess. assess. It says access, excuse okay. me, uh, feel the exact same way as when I read the source material. Hmm. Each minute of the film reminded me of flipping pages that inspired the art that I was watching. That being said, two films come to mind that I felt exactly like I read them. American assassin starring Dylan O'Brien and Michael Keaton and the perks of being a wallflower starring Logan Lerman, Emma Watson and Ezra Miller. Uh, books I haven't read. I'm yeah, I've seen both yeah. movies. I haven't read either. Um, American Assassin felt like the spy thriller book series that it was based off of. Nothing that needed to win awards, but something fun, somewhat cliche, and the tone matched the book. Uh, Perks of Being a Wildflower doesn't surprise me, having similar vibes to both the books, since the author, Stephen uh, Chbosky, wrote and directed the film, giving the heartfelt coming-of-age story that impacted me toward the end of my high school years. That's, uh, yeah, that's one that people who are of a certain age when it came out yeah. really, really glommed on to. I'm know, pretty uh, fascinated by it, actually. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's a good movie, but I was, oh, yeah, like, was... I was like, I think it was like 30 when it came out or something, mm. a little little older, and like, I was like, oh, it's a really good movie, and now I'm finding out that everyone who was a teenager when that came out was like, like this! Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like, this, this is, this is it, <laughs> they nailed it. Look, look, old man, shut up about The Breakfast Club, it's over, it's I gone. never thought and... The Breakfast Club was accurate, I never, I know some no, people did, well, but that was never, that never had anything to do with my school experience. No, I, well, I've, I've, I went to weird schools, so I've never seen my school experience, yeah. or, or my youth accurately depicted on screen. <sighs> Not especially, no, but anyway, moving on. We, we uh, anyway, um, what are some adaptations that give you similar feelings as to when you experience the original source material? Mm. You guys have a great day, and I'm eagerly waiting your responses. Sincerely, Andrew. Uh, that's a good question. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a lot of movies, like since the dawn of cinema, mm. uh, have been adapted from plays, books, mm. songs. Like, it's there's always been adaptation mm. uh, in cinema. Um, and for a variety of reasons, sometimes they're technical. Sometimes mm. it's about duration. Sometimes it's about what you're allowed to put on screen based on the social or legal uh, limitations of the time. Mm. Uh, and sometimes you just have other ideas. Um, they don't necessarily get adapted, quote unquote, faithfully. Uh, but I think we're, we all, and I think uh, uh, our, our mm. listener had the right idea. It's not so much about like, cramming everything from the page into the film mm. it is about acknowledging here's what made this worth adapting in the first place yeah and getting that on screen even if in the process you do make changes you cast mm. characters in a different way or yeah. you remove subplots or you add subplots in order to get from point a to point b a little differently one of my favorite uh movie adaptations ever and i think this is a good example uh is la confidential Mm. Uh, LA Confidential is an incredibly sprawling, complicated book. And as sprawling and as complicated as the Oscar winning film is, um, it's only about like half as complicated as the novel is. And they <laughs> had to cut out t lots of main characters. Mm. Like, there was a. It, they didn't use the name because they ended up saying some pretty salacious things about him, but. Uh, like Disney is a character in the novel. Oh gosh, like a, okay. like a significant character in the novel, and he's working with Exley's dad, the Guy mm. Pierce character, whose dad died in the movie, and that gives him his whole motivation. 
In the book, he's alive and well. Like, they changed a ton of what? shit. Right. The shootout at the end of Ellie Confidential. That's not, that's halfway through the book, No, right? it's yeah. the first chapter. Oh. <laughs> they changed so much, but it feels right. Yeah. They, they understood the spirit of it. They understood what the characters were about. They understood the attitude that it had about Hollywood history and uh, the history both of the entertainment industry and crime in Los Angeles mm. and Los Angeles itself as... Um, a social construct uh, full of corruption and racism and mm. hope for the future as well. Um, and it works, even though it's totally different. Mm. That's one of the first ones that comes to mind. Uh, this is a, a dicey question for me, because if I go into a film uh, with foreknowledge of a book, yeah, uh, I'm going to be... I can never be sure if the good, if I'm enjoying the film, if the good feelings I'm getting are being kind of grandfathered in by my affection for the book. Yeah, well, sometimes so, you don't have like a pure experience of discovering something for the first time. And yeah. so it's, like, if, it's like when you see a remake. If, you if, know? if it reminds me of the book, I can't necessarily say that's the film doing all the heavy lifting or if it's if if I'm bringing a lot to it, just because I have affection for the material already. Well, this is why, like some places, when they assign critics mm. to cover certain material, mm. they ask people who are familiar with it, because clearly, you know, the new Star Trek series is made for people who like Star Trek. Well, not the new ones, but well, you know <laughs> what I mean. Like they they're catering to what they consider to be a pre-existing fan base, mm. and so the perspective of someone who is already familiar with it has a certain cachet. But also the perspective of someone who is visiting Star Trek for the very first time would also be valuable. Exactly, yeah. But you don't just pick one or the other. You, the, ideally, you want to get perspectives from everybody, if not within the same publication, then at least throughout the publication yeah. world. Um, so I, I guess my thing is like when people like I, I get this question a lot actually. Like if you know a book, a movie is coming out based on a book, do you read the book first? Mm. I'm like I'm not going to go out of my way just because the movie's coming out. If I yeah. had an interest, I might. But yeah. I'm not necessarily going to do that. But I also, you know, sometimes movies come out and I have read the book. Yeah. I, and I, that's just, I, and I have to deal with it then. Well, so I'm, just be honest about my experience and you move on. Yeah, my hard and fast rule is actually uh, to never read the book ahead of time. Mm. Let the film stand up for itself. And if it fails as a film, I'll be able to more accurately be able to, fails or succeeds as a film, that's what I can react to. But you can't, the film. But you can't be, like, you can't do that all the time. You've read books. Indeed. Sometimes yeah. they turn into movies. What are you going to do? You like books. Mm. Yeah, I hope they do 100 Years of Solitude, the movies, at some point. Um, but well, what comes uh, to mind? That's a good adaptation that captures the sense of reading the book as well as you can recall. Golly, what is... I remember when I saw... Uh, and this is sort of like a, a weird experience because this was a film that I... Or a book that I really had to push my way through because it was a really challenging book. But it was a Lawrence Stern's The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman. Oh, yeah. And Michael Winterbottom made a film based on this unfilmable book about the making of an unfilmable movie. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, it's like faux documentary footage from the set of this Tristram Shandy movie. The, the title of the film was Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story. And, uh, it, and it was written by and starred Steve Coogan as somebody who was trying to make a Tristram Shandy movie. And it was about the, the trials of turning this completely bizarre book into a movie and all of the modern literary criticisms that have come up around this book. Because Lawrence Stern wrote this really difficult postmodern book, but it was back in the 1700s, so there wasn't really a modern yet. And a lot of... Uh, a lot of the conversation about the book is also about the criticism of the book and where it stands in literary history. So if you're going to adapt it, you kind of have to address that. I think yeah. they did a really smart thing 
in making it a modern movie about the book itself. Yeah. And yet somehow that captured the spirit of the book better than I think any kind of straightforward adaptation would have. Yeah. Because the joke of the book is that it's an, an auto, it's a biography. It's the main character. Uh, Tristram Shandy is going to tell his life story, but gets so distracted telling stories about other people in his life and what was going on and you know, wars that were happening at the time that, uh, he's not born until the end of the book. Like he only, by the time the book ends, he gets to his birth. Like that's, that's how much he gets distracted by all of these asides and, 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 and tangents. So I think something like that, that captures the spirit of the book yeah. rather than even anything that anything that's in the book is I think way more important than well, getting plot points or characters. Well, let me ask you a question because here's, here's an adaptation mm. That is incredibly loose. It gets to some of the material in it, but it goes off and does completely completely its own thing. Mm. And it's an adaptation of a book I've tried to read. Okay. And never was able to fully get into, but I love the movie. I, I'm pretty sure you've read it. What are your thoughts on David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch? Oh, oh golly. I, and I have read Naked Lunch. I um, thought so, yeah. Well, the story with Naked Lunch is William S. Burroughs, uh, famously a drug addict, um, he he famously said, uh, shoot, shooting junk leads to shooting junk. It leads to nothing else. That is the only goal of a junkie. Yeah. And uh, he holed up in a hotel room with his typewriter and was just you know high out of his mind on whatever he was shooting up that week and uh, was just banging out all of these kind of nonsensical pages that were just coming to him while he was high, ripping the pages out uh, out of the typewriter, throwing them over his head and just starting over again. And then uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac ended up luckily finding him, taking him to the hospital because he was nearly dead and scooping up all of these pages and trying to put them together as best they could. Yeah. Like some of the stories connect, some of them don't. It's just this big, mm -hmm. weird psychedelic miasma of strange goings on and about drugs and bugs from other dimensions and sex orgies. Uh, again, that's not something you can film. No. Like, you could do a literal surrealist film about that, but, you know, that wouldn't necessarily make, like, a movie. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have, like, a narrative to speak of. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, David Cronenberg did the next best thing and made it sort of the the story of William Burroughs' experiences while he was writing the book. Yeah. And so it has a lot of the elements from the book, but it's more about Bill, uh, Bill Burroughs, who's called Bill Lee in the movie. They give him an alias. Uh, it incorporates something that actually happened to William Burroughs, who... Uh, while playing William Tell, murdered someone, murdered his wife. Uh, and that, yeah, that's a, a recurring element throughout the film. And also, mm -hmm. yeah, like when he's typing, his typewriter starts to turn into, like, bugs and monsters and mm -hmm. stuff. That's And it, like, him. secretes a fluid that yeah. is itself a drug. Like, yeah. writing so, is a so drug. Yeah, yeah, while he's in a drug, and, yeah, the yeah. fluid is a drug, and, yeah, like, turns into monster heads, and he talks to mugwumps. Uh, the film is fascinating and unwatchable. Oh, I find it's, it very watchable. Actually. Okay. It's weird because I find the book almost unreadable. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and the book is also unreadable, but I think that's kind of by design. I feel the same way about uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Like, yeah, just that's another, a good, that's another a good one. Yeah. That's a good one because that movie is actually pretty great. And mm. that book is also pretty great, and mm. both of them are ramblings. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, ramblings. they're just chaos, and that, that's why yeah. that's what I mean. Why it's unwatchable? It doesn't feel like a, an emotionally engaging film. It feels like yeah, it's, it doesn't have a it's, try, line. It's, it's trying to cut yeah. into your brain, and that can be a really exhilarating experience. I don't think it's a good adaptation though, because it doesn't mm. really capture the same kind of wild, like just 
brain frenzied chaos that the book has. Well, I think I think the book is all that's immediacy because he was writing it as it was as it was either happening or as he was embellishing what was happening. Mm. Uh, and I think Gilliam's film is in retrospect. You know, oh, Gilliam's I was, I was talking has, about Naked Lunch, but yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were still yeah. talking about Fear and Loathing because yeah, I think yeah. Fear and Loathing is actually a very good adaptation. Yeah, uh, yeah. but Naked Lunch I can't speak to because again, mm. I never got through the book. Yeah. Mm. Weird, but yeah, uh, fear, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yes, is, is about very, sort of the chaos in in Hunter Thompson's mind, and mm. I think Terry Gilliam is a very chaotic director. Is a good pairing for that kind of material. Um, Alex Cox is one of the uh, credited screenwriters because there was a mix up. Mm. Uh, Alex Cox wrote a screenplay. Terry Gilliam wrote his own screenplay. Started to shoot his own screenplay, and it wasn't until they were like shooting that the studio said, "Wait, you were supposed to be using this script." Ah. And and Alex Cox got so pissed. Uh, who did Repo Man and yeah. Walker and a bunch of other uh, really wild movies? I wish I could have seen that script. Well, but, I, uh, did but you I, ever I, see like there were like two competing Hunter S. Thompson documentaries mm-hmm. that came out a few years after Fear and Loathing, and one of them actually featured a scene of Alex Cox trying to pitch Hunter S. Thompson his ideas for the movie. Mm-hmm. And Hunter S. Thompson got so increasingly pissed at Alex Cox that he, mm-hmm. uh, Alex Cox that he ended up like. Telling him to get out or he'll get his shotgun. And you could tell <laughs> he meant that. Uh-huh. Like, I don't think Andres Thompson was particularly pleased with what Alex Cox was doing. Mm. When they published, we're off in the weeds, but when they published the screenplay of mm. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, like you can get at a bookstore, because they didn't use Alex Cox's draft and because mm. ultimately, because they were adapting the same book, Gilliam's draft didn't differ enough from Alex Cox's that the WGA was comfortable taking Alex Cox's name off of it. Yeah, so he's a Alex Cox is still accredited screenwriter, right? Even even though his script wasn't the one they used yeah, for for but shooting, they're based off of the same book, and there was a lot of parallels because mm. they're covering the same material and they're mm. both taking dialogue out of the story. And um, so when they published the book. Because they didn't want to put Alex Cox's name on it, they called it not a screenplay, a dress pattern. <laughs> they called the Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas like a dress pattern by Terry Gilliam and whoever called it. Oh, that's that really funny. Yeah, it's really weird. Mm. Um, anyway, those are some good examples. Then. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's do. We got time. Uh, this got to be a short episode because we're trying right. to cram in some podcasts tonight. Right. So uh, we have time for one or two more. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. here's, here's a letter from Tom K. Hello, Tom K. Hello. Uh, hi there, Bibbs and Rock Rodmeister McEwen. Nice. <laughs> uh, the two letters from uh, your latest letters episode touched on a recurring theme from my childhood. I was born in 1984. Okay. I consider myself a millennial. And as a five-year-old, I remember my family taking me to see Star Trek V The Final Frontier, nice. the William Shatner-directed entry, where they wonder why someone who claims to be God would want a freaking starship. And of course, it was the first time I ever saw anything having to do with Star Trek. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> introduction your, your to Star Trek. Your entry yeah. was one of the bad movies. <laughs> a few years later, my dad showed me and my sister Rocky V, which introduced us to a broke middle-aged burnt bum with brain damage sustained from heavy blows to the head. When you factor in Superman Four and Jaws The Revenge, I guess you can say I had some pretty lousy luck when it came to certain intellectual properties. <laughs> but later I, I will was, go to bat for, jo- for Superman 4 and Jaws, Jaws 4. I like both of those movies. Uh, uh, I've mentioned, I've talked about it plenty of times. Yeah. I'm not going to relitigate it. Superman now. 4, which was made for like $500. I don't blame the money. Yeah. Uh, later on, I was able to enjoy what made them successful in the first place. What were the franchises that you came in at the worst possible time, yeah. either out of interest later on or just introduced to you by others as a child? Has this clouded your opinion of these to this day? I hope all is well. Thank you for the hours of joy you have given me over the last five years. Sincerely, Tom K. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I've actually had pretty good luck. 
Like, I think the first Bond movie I ever mm. saw was Goldeneye, which is one of the good ones. Yeah, that's that's. So that was that wasn't so bad. I think that's still my favorite is Goldeneye. It's um, up there. It's really good. Um, hmm, that's uh, interesting. I uh, I saw, I because yeah, I would just sort of wander into uh, video stores and pick off the shelves what was interesting. Yeah, I never bothered with starting with part ones. I would just grab oh this, this third one looks fun. Let's just start there. Yeah, I, I didn't. I wasn't so much a stickler for continuity. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the first movie I saw in the Highlander series was Highlander Two: The Quickening. Ooh. Uh, which which changed the whole premise of the first movie. So really <laughs> so for my eye, it was always about space aliens that could be resurrected. <laughs> That's amazing. Because uh, Highlander is a sort of this mythic story about this uh, race of immortals that lived in uh, Scotland. That's mm-hmm. Highlanders. And uh, they were all on a quest to behead one another. That was the only way you could kill them, was beheading them. Right. And if you beheaded another immortal as an immortal, you absorbed their power. And you became stronger. And I think you even got some of their memories, if I recall. Um, maybe that was something that was introduced later. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the whole point was, uh, if you were the last immortal, you essentially got one wish. Mm. You, you could just wish for anything. So the, yeah. all, all of the, it's basically dragon, Ball. All, all of the immortals were on this unending quest to kill all the other immortals. And yeah. Well, it's fun, fun Highlander premise. two clarified that it was a wish. Highlander one basically mm. just said, you become one with all things. You basically mm. become like omniscient. Yeah. That was, that was the prize. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they just called it the prize. And in Highlander 2, it takes place in the future when the ozone layer has been completely melted away and the main character has now become a scientist who's invented a solar shield that covered the Earth to save everybody, but now it's always night and society has gone to pot. Yeah, yeah, Snowpiercer didn't invent that shit. (laughs) That was Highlander. And, uh... The main character is now an old man and really unconvincing old man eight man makeup yeah, really because bad. he's killed all the other immortals and now he can age. I guess that was his wish. Yeah. Uh, but it's revealed that some new immortals show up on Earth because they're from another planet and they were able to travel to Earth and that's where they were hiding out. So some science fiction bad alien bad guys are now yeah. part of this mythology. That all seemed completely natural to me. <laughs> I didn't have this Highlander movie, you know, mucking up my view of Highlander 2, The Quickening. That just makes sense. Yeah, it's like, okay, they're immortals from another planet. I'd like to go back and see the first one and see what these, what science fiction stories they have to tell. It wasn't a science fiction story, it's a fantasy story. Yeah. So, Um, uh, yeah, that that colored my view of the Highlander series uh, for a little while. Yeah. Uh, For me, uh, the one that comes to mind, actually isn't even that embarrassing, at least I don't think so, uh, was Conan the Destroyer. Was my introduction oh, to Conan. Yeah. Uh, Conan? I love Conan the Destroyer. Yep, Conan uh, was created by Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard, is that right? I think so. Um, and uh, he was a character out of pulp literature, uh, a barbarian who uh, fought his way over the lands with his mighty chest and had sex with mighty women and <laughs> killed mighty snakes and um, and he's he's just like wow. Dude stuff. Like, that's kind of what it was all about. Um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Conan the Barbarian, directed by John Milius, is generally considered to be a fantasy classic. And with good cause, it's a great movie. Uh, and Conan the Destroyer is generally considered to be a cheap turd. And uh, I, I saw Conan the Destroyer first, and I grant you that does, uh, uh, you know, shade my perspective. Mm-hmm. But I put it to you 
that if you don't have vaunted ideas of what a movie about a shirtless barbarian fighting wizards should be, Conan the Destroyer is fine. <laughs> Conan is the Destroyer fine. is a perfectly fine, it's wonderful. entertaining, low-budget matinee. Well, not, not even that low-budget, just, you know, now it feels low-budget. At the time, it was reasonably fine. and Just, just a good, 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 good just, sword and sandals, good solid, dude. Uh, good, solid piece of schlock. Yeah, That's, Grace you know, Jones is amazing Grace in it. Jones Rocco is, is it. amazing yeah, in it. You got Tracy Walter in there. Yeah, yeah. You got Andre the Giant as, like, a unicorn monster, and you can only kill him by, like, ripping out his horn, which is, like, connected to his brain, yeah, so it's <laughs> awesome. You get to see all the sinews ripping. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see this awesome sequence of, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting a wizard who looks like the bad guy from Thundercats to death. Like, it's really, it's fun. Mm. I like that movie. Yeah. It's a perfectly good matinee version of Conan. Is Conan the Barbarian, the original Schwarzenegger version, better? Yes. That's a better <laughs> movie. I will not fight that. Mm. Is Conan the Destroyer perfectly decent as, like, a three-star action movie? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I like that one. That one's fine. Yeah, although... More than anything, I, I uh, th- this may shock you to learn, but I was not like deeply steeped in a lot of pop culture when I was a kid. Like I watched TV, played a lot of video games, but I didn't watch a lot of the movies that seemed to be standard issue for people my age. Yeah. So I wasn't watching stuff like Alien and, and like I saw RoboCop at sleepovers and stuff, and I liked yeah. Indiana Jones movies, but. Yeah, I wasn't, like, really deep into a lot of this stuff, and I wasn't, like, really deeply emotionally connected to a lot of this stuff. So, so yeah, by the time I'm 30, by the time I'm seeing stuff like Die Hard and Beverly Hills Cop. and I remember when you first saw Die Hard. You were like, have you seen this Die Hard? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I have. Well, some I really fell in love with. Like, I I really like Die Hard. I I regret that I waited as long as I did to see Repo Man. Um, Yeah. Some I didn't really care for, like Beverly Hills Cop. Others have done this better now. It's I, like, I don't need to go back I, I'm anymore. Not, I, I was the exact same yeah. way. I didn't watch Beverly Hills Cop until I was in my 30s. I think mm. I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop 3, which is a bad movie. <laughs> but then I saw Beverly Hills Cop 1, and I'm like, this isn't great. Like, Eddie Murphy's really good, but mm. it's also, like, got some real homophobic shit in there. Yeah, and, like, yeah. it's really shabbily presented. Like, the structure mm. is really episodic and kind of meandering. and. Mm. I just can't really take it. I can't really take it seriously. Not just as a narrative, because I know it's a comedy, but as a movie. Like mm-hmm. I don't understand why this was like I, Eddie Murphy's awesome. Yeah, his star power. That's that's what that movie's got going Ed, for. It's because Eddie Murphy's a force of nature. And yeah. um, I look um, at that movie the way I look at like Ace Ventura. The movie yeah. itself is not great. It's just Jim Carrey was on fire at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and Ace Ventura is great until all the transphobic Again? shit. Again, uh, the shit. What the fuck? It's like, yeah, it's like, oh wait, just really? And they leaned hard in that. I didn't even understand shit, yeah. that when it came out. And mm-hmm. now I look back, I'm like, oh my god, it was yeah, so it's, it's I really really transphobic. About. Yeah, like the first the first two thirds is just a fun broad wacky comedy, but yeah. you know, and then they reveal like the big twist in the case. It's like, oh, yeah, ooh, yeah, yeah. It really, is. it really stings now. It really stings. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, because of just my media consumption habits, uh, I would see parodies before I saw originals. Mm. So that colored my view of a lot of original things. Like uh, I saw Spaceballs twenty times before I ever saw a Star Wars movie. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was. Because of the kind of stuff I was uh, consuming as a kid, like reading Mad Magazine and listening to Weird Al Yankovic, I uh, I couldn't take a lot of pop culture seriously after that. That I'd... kind of colored just my general view of the usefulness of pop culture to the human mind. It's like, no, that's 
That's the dominant paradigm. Yeah. Where's the fun shit that's underneath? Actually, that's what I'm more interested in. I actually had a weird experience with that where mm-hmm. um, uh, we have this podcast on Patreon. It's Patreon exclusive. It's called mm-hmm. Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're about to start uh, the mm-hmm. year of uh, 1940 uh, in, a, in a week or two. Uh, but uh, recently we covered a Spencer Tracy film called Captain's Courageous. Mm-hmm. It's the first film that won Spencer Tracy an Academy Award for Best Actor. Good movie. Really good movie. I really liked it a lot. I was actually surprised I had never seen it, and mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. But as I'm watching this really excellent film about this like spoiled rich kid who like falls over the side of the boat and gets picked up mm-hmm. by a uh, like a workaday fishing trawler, mm-hmm. and they're not going to stop fishing because they need that for the their year's income just to take this kid back to home mm-hmm. so the kid has to stay with them and learn fishing and learn a thing or two about life it's great but as i'm watching this movie i'm like wait a second this is just cabin boy <laughs> and then i realized wait a minute cabin boy is just captain's courageous yes <laughs> i just ripped off the story <laughs> But I knew Cabin Boy first. I saw Cabin Boy when I was minute, pretty this, young. And... This movie from the 50s is just Battle Beyond the Stars, but with Samurai. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. when you were introduced to the other thing first, yeah, yeah. that's how it works in your brain for a second. Mm. And then you re- then you have to stop and flip those things around. Mm. Wait, strike that, reverse it, thank you. And so it's weird. It happens to all of us. And sometimes you have no idea mm. until you start digging around and start watching Best Picture nominees from 1938. Um, I think it was 37, actually. 37. But, yeah, yeah, but anyway. Anyway, that's a fun question, yeah. though, and I'm sure everyone uh, has good examples of that. Uh, one more? Yeah, I'll have one more. Right, here's, one. here's one more. This one's from Oliver. Uh, dear Rockmeister McCool and Bibbs, but mostly Rockmeister McCool. Oh, Under, man, thank the, you. Yeah, everyone's got their favorites. I'm writing to you as you are the only person who loved Quibi. <laughs> Just as unironically as I did. I'm so glad we we, we bookended our podcast. This This email is a chance to mourn the loss of Quibi. I was one of those people that looked down on Quibi until I saw a YouTube video of Mark Hamill uh, singing a song about King Kong's penis. (laughs) Look up that video. It's hilarious. Okay. Uh, With a link link to more songs like it on Quibi. So I went, sure, why not? Uh, once there, I discovered the true wonders of Quibi, a third wave of feminist parable starring Anna Kendrick and a talking blow-up doll. Yes, please. Uh, silicon sex doll, not a blow-up doll, but yeah. yes. Uh, a COVID-safe remake of The Princess Bride. You betcha. What more could you want? My question is, what will you miss most about Quibi? <laughs> a twist of Oliver. Um, I think I'll just miss boosting for it uh, as it <laughs> slides slowly into the pit of oblivion. Uh Here's the weird thing about Quibi, the way they kind of sold it. Mm. I've seen a lot of movies on Quibi now. And something about that format, being able to sort of uh, take it in little chapters, uh, leaves you a little bit more laid back about the stories, right? Because mm. you're not sitting there immersed in it throughout the entire... Like, you could watch them all in a, in a strand. Oh, it's, it's like, listen, we, but, uh, used to watch, we used to watch, for uh, example, movies on network television. Yeah. Before everyone had cable, and then before everyone dished cable and go to streaming, they were interrupted by commercials every ten minutes or so. Anyway, yeah. So, so it really, wasn't that? It's not that weird to people who grew up with that. Yeah, so it's just new a material with breaks yeah. in it, and I yeah. think that a lot allows... of streaming services do that. Like Tubi does that, yeah. Peacock does that, Crackle mm. does that. They're free, so they show mm. you ads every ten minutes. Yeah. It's Quibi, but you're watching it all in one chunk, and they're throwing ads in your face. 
No, and it's it's like one ad per chapter. It's actually yeah. not that bad. It's not bad. Like watching YouTube videos I mean, is that, worse. Here's the thing. That's not the thing I'm complaining about, at yeah. least anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, and the tech was always impeccable. It always worked. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they put a lot of money into to making sure the tech worked. Uh, but because you have it in these little sort of little bits, little quick bites, uh, they so, something about like having some like common genre tropes or like predictable types of stories made them weirdly a little bit more palatable. It had this kind of serialized Saturday afternoon feeling to it. So I'm watching something like The Expecting with Anna Sophia Robb about a, a woman who might be carrying a demon baby. It's like I've seen a lot of demon baby movies. Yeah. I've seen parodies of demon baby movies. Have you seen Hell Baby? It's funny. It'll make you hungry. There's a lot of po'boy eating scenes that are delicious. They invent mm. pizza salad. Here's what you do. when You, you know like when you, eat a, you order a pizza and you have some pizza left over? Right? Okay, you take that pizza, you like cut it into little bits, <laughs> and you use it as croutons in a salad. And let me tell you something. I've done that. It's great. Thanks, Hell Baby. Totally works. <laughs> it's great. It's just, mm. it's just cheesy croutons. Mm. It's, a, it's a great, like, you know, like oh, wow. you're on a budget, you want to spice up your salad at home <laughs> drink. It's great. It works. I, I've done that at Soup Plantation. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I, I, but yeah, because I'm seeing it in this sort of serialized format, it does have that that old timey serial feeling to it. Yeah. So you can see something that has, that's actually kind of cliche, and that's they've actually been doing some old stories. Like there's a new Most Dangerous Game take. Yeah, and it's Most Dangerous Game. It's this old story. You know how it's going to work out. Only now it's Detroit. It's not some island. He's just in the city of Detroit, and he can't leave the city. And you don't know who the killers are. That's fine. And, and they're running around Detroit trying to find you. And, and, and fun, you're, you're, Liam, you're Liam Hemsworth and you have cancer. Wait a minute. And now you're isn't trying the, to... Isn't that the... Isn't that, I mean, they're both remakes of Most Dangerous Game, but yeah. isn't that kind of the version from The Pest with John Leguizamo? We don't mention The Pest. I'm sorry. <laughs> I the, apologize. The Pest is shit. The Pest is quite bad. Yeah. <laughs> the, this new Most Dangerous Game? Good. Okay. And, and who's and who's the evil mastermind? Christoph Waltz. Well, of course he and is. And Liam Hemsworth is a handsome hunk of dude. So, <laughs> sure. You're doing Most Dangerous Game? Just call it Most Dangerous Game. Yeah. Put in a serialized format. Watch it in afternoons. Good times. <laughs> and then the downside, of course, is that because all these shows were like super short, mm. Quibi was able to sidestep union rules and not pay people as much. Well, that sucks. That's a mm. shitty thing that Quibi did. But, well, so you, when we, we're talking about... You know what? About... Comeuppance. They lost $2 billion, Yeah, so. that's, that's a good point, actually. It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah. <laughs> they... they, they they reap what they sow, I suppose. Yeah. But the downside is a lot of people did put a lot of effort into making yeah. good shows. Well, I still haven't watched one of them. But again, as I said, we're going to try to do something canceled too soon yeah, before November is up. And they're, they're not just movies. There's also like serialized TV shows. There's yeah. news programs. There's game shows. Uh, just they they thought this out. Yeah. And a lot of people said, oh, that's a bad idea. I'm never going to watch something on my phone. Now, excuse me while I go watch something on my phone. It's like... Mm-hmm. Okay, just because they said out loud something you were already doing and you're embarrassed doesn't mean it's their fault. Uh, and as as I've yeah. said before, I think it was just a, an idea that's a little ahead of its time. Uh, just something that is for phones exclusively. I will say this, and again, I haven't seen anything on Quibi. Mm. It bugs me when people say I'm never gonna in, I'm never gonna enjoy that. That's new and weird and stupid without mm. at least trying it. Yeah, and, and you, you, you got to try it. You got to try. You can say it for free. Yeah. You, know, you you joked. Uh-huh. And then I remember you you joke you thought Quibi sounded silly because it does. Uh-huh. Then you then on a whim 
you got a trial on on Quibi, and then you came back and I'm like, actually, this is really interesting, and I'm digging it. Yeah, and I'm it's, like, it's really, wow, it's okay. this really interesting way of consuming media. And yeah. you go on YouTube, you know what? They some people to try to skirt around, you know, copyrights, put bootlegs on YouTube. Yeah, you can watch like of, ten minutes of this movie. Yeah, and they they like spread out these chapters, yeah. ten minutes of a movie watched on your phone. Quibi just did that with original content. It's not the weirdest thing mm, in the world. It's really not. It really yeah. isn't. I mean, if you think about it, what, are, what that's why books have chapters. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily... They, they don't expect you to read all of Lord of the Rings in one sitting. There's a chapter so that if you want to read it chapter by chapter, mm. you can stop. That's why they invented bookmarks. <laughs> Ooh. Um, but yeah, I, I think... And uh, another thing about Quibi is the upright... Uh, you can watch it landscape. Mm-hmm. Like, hold your phone sideways and watch it like a, a traditional, sh- traditionally shot film. But, or you can watch it upright. I've been watching all of the films upright. Mm. Uh, just because that was sort of their... their the novelty. Yeah, yeah the, the, the novel thing they were introducing. And it, it has it actually introduced a new kind of film aesthetic. Yeah. Like, or, we're, or you're used to the landscape aesthetic where things move from left to right and the, you know, the rule of threes. The rule of threes doesn't really work when it's just the center third. Yeah. But all of a sudden, we're looking at uh, long shots in a different sort of way, things that extend upward. Yeah. Uh, the way people are a little bit more isolated in a box where the walls are really uh, close around them. You can do a lot of really good when, suspense filmmaking that way. When you think about it, a lot of filmmakers mm. have tried within a frame to create a new aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Look at like the opening sh- and closing shots of the searchers where we're going to take it's the like entire vista. Yeah. There's a doorway and it's just giving you the up and down. It might as well be the aspect ratio of your phone mm-hmm. like on it, when it's vertical. And then as we walk through it, all of a sudden then we see the vista of the American West. Yeah. But for a bit, that's the aspect ratio that John Ford was playing with. It's just up and down. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with the actual physical tactile size and shape of cinema that had to be standardized in order to run through a projector you were either limited by what the shape was or you had to get tricky with it now that everything's digital you can do any format you want you're not limited to academy or anamorphic or or anything really you could make you could shoot a movie with a fucking star filter on it Mm. And that could be your whole... Th- I mean, that doesn't necessarily yeah. sound like a good idea, but who knows? Maybe it'd be fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Try it. I saw a film a couple of years ago. Uh, the title was Hauha, and uh, J-A-U-J-A, uh, had Viggo Mortensen. It was shot in one-to-one. Perfect square. Okay. You don't see that too often. No. Uh, meanwhile, I... Uh, uh, Lucy in the Sky shifted aspect ratios a lot, and sometimes yeah. it was like a really thin band of image across the middle of the screen. Sometimes it was Academy Standard. Like, they mm-hmm. moved around a lot with that movie. So, yeah, aspect ratio isn't a standard. It's just something our eye is used to. Yeah, well, not and anymore. When you're, and when you're looking at it on your phone, which has this upright aspect ratio, now you can create a new kind of isolation. There's a shot in that film, The Expecting, where uh, somebody goes to this like really remote spot. Now you can show like a long, a wide shot of a building of like way over to the right or something. Yeah. Maybe like a, a car parked over here and get, you really play with the balance of that image. Or you could put it way down at the bottom of the screen and most of the screen above it is just this big black tower of nothingness above it. That nails that isolation a lot better, I would say. That's interesting. So yeah, I think it's giving us a, a new way to think about media uh, and it was pegged as a bad idea sight unseen and i think uh, it, it's too bad shame. too many people didn't explore it i got my shirt on so i'm definitely <laughs> I, standing for quibi I, I, I do want one of those shirts i'm not gonna lie <laughs> um well anyway that is we've got mail for this week thank you everybody who wrote in um mm. 
Yeah, well, uh, that's that's we've got mail for this week. Thank everybody who wrote, <laughs> wrote in. I don't know what you say, want from me. Say it twice. Uh, right. You can write in if you would like to. Uh, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed dot net. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to answer your questions, recommend films, hear your film recommendations, uh, just get your thoughts on any of the many things that we discuss or don't discuss mm. on our regular shows. We just want to hear from you. Again, this is your forum. We're happy to give it to you. Um, we uh, run also on Twitter. If you want to contact us there, uh, we are at Critic Acclaim. I myself am at William Bibiani. I myself am at Whitney Seibel. If you want more Critically Acclaimed, uh, we have the Critically Acclaimed Network. You're on it now. Just subscribe. Mm. Leave us a review if you can. That always helps. Uh, we have a ton of shows here, but we also have our Patreon, patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network, mm. where you have the ability to vote for future episodes of our various shows and also access exclusive content like Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about uh, movies that should be on Disney, but are on Disney Plus, but are mysteriously not. Mm. Uh, we have Only the Best. We talked about it this week. Every single film ever nominated for Best Picture we're trying to get through. Uh, All Our Yesterdays, we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Holy Batman, where we're talking about every single episode of the 1960s Batman. We've got commentary tracks. We're going to do a commentary track for Sleepy Hollow later this week uh, for for the Halloweenies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and a bunch of other stuff besides. So thank you, everyone who wrote in. Big special thank you. Huge shout out to all of our patrons, without whom we couldn't be doing this, or indeed keeping the lights on. Hmm. Uh, so we're just incredibly grateful to you. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show, however you can. Uh, it means the world to us. Yeah. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>